Before we get started with this episode, I wanted to share some news with our listeners. The Network in Canadian History and Environment is raising funds this month to support its ongoing operations. For years, Niche has published outstanding work in Canadian environmental history and supported a network of scholars across the country and beyond. They're now looking for support from our community. Niche publishes a blog, book reviews, teaching and research resources, research project websites, a peer-reviewed journal, and ebooks. It also publishes this podcast. If you like what they do, then I hope you can support Niche today with a donation at niche-canada.org support. Become a Niche supporter by going to niche-canada.org support. Nature History Society 40 Books Later a conversation with the three most recent authors in the Nature History Society series from UBC Press. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 73 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the network in Canadian history and environment. Last April, the Nature History Society series from University of British Columbia Press celebrated the publication of its 40th book. As the first book series to focus on Canadian environmental history, Nature History Society has covered a range of topics from urban environments to wildlife to water to energy. This episode of the podcast features a panel discussion with the three most recent authors in the book series. Angela Carter, Stefan Castingay, and Daniel McFarlane joined me to talk about their recently published books. And we were joined by James McNevin from UBC Press, who shared some background on the book series and plans for its future. Let me introduce to you the panel that we've got uh, organized here for you today. Um, we have got three uh, authors as well as uh, someone from UBC Press to talk about the series here with us, and I'm going to introduce them to you in the order in which they'll be speaking to us. So uh, first up, we've got uh, James McNevin, who's joining us from UBC Press. Hi, James. Hello. Uh, we'll also be speaking to uh, uh, Angela Carter. Angela. Hi. Uh, we're also joined by Stefan Castingay. Hello. And finally, Dan McFarlane. Hi, Dan. Hello. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, let's get started then. Um, we've got three of uh, the most recent authors from this, um, I will say, incredible book series, uh, but I will also... Uh, disclose that I am also an author in the book series, so take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> but the, these are the three most recent, bringing it up to 40 books. Um, so maybe just to start things off for uh, viewers and listeners, James, can you tell us a little bit about the Nature History Society s series and its uh, overall objectives? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, first I should just acknowledge that uh, you know there have been, I think there's been basically three people who have... Uh, been involved in, in the series at, on, on our end at UBC Press, and I've actually played uh, by far the smallest role. Um, I, I only came on board as the uh, the acquisitions editor for this area um, just under five years ago when I joined UBC Press. Um, and before that, it was my colleague Randy Schmidt, who was the 
uh, editor in environmental history for probably two thirds or three quarters of the of the time that the series has existed. Uh, and then of course there's Graham Wynn, who uh, is the the general editor for the series, um, who unfortunately is not able to uh, to participate in this this event today. But um, so in you know in many ways I, I have the uh, the least to say about <laughs> about, the, about the series, but um, just to to uh, give a bit of a background on, on the series, uh, Graham did write a really great, uh, really great blog post for our, our website, which I would encourage everybody to check out if they haven't. Um, that gives an overview of the history of the series and, and you know, his thinking when he when he launched the series. So, in a nutshell, it was you know about twenty years ago he started thinking that there was uh, a need for a Canadian environmental history series. Um, you know, the, the field of environmental history was really coming into its own in in Canada um, and. There were some book series with American presses and international presses, but you know, often getting Canadian books into those series can be a challenge because they're focused on the American market or the the, the international market. Um, and so he really saw a need for a you know a home base for Canadian environmental history. So I think that was one of the motivating factors behind the series. But also, um, it's you know a lot more than that. The series from from the very beginning has been a deliberately interdisciplinary series. Um, you know, I think it's very deliberate that it's not called a history of environment series or environmental history series. It's called the nature history society series. And, um, you know, the idea has been all along to include books that look at all three of those terms uh, and the interface between those three terms um, from a variety of perspectives. So it's, you know, there have been art historians, anthropologists, uh, at least one legal scholar, uh, political scientist um, in the series. Yeah, that's you, Angela. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's been an interdisciplinary series all along. Um, and at the same time, it's also a, uh, you know, very much a curated series. You know, Graham is a very active series editor. Um, he's a very engaged editor with the, the books that go into the series. Uh, and he writes the forewords for, for every, um, every, uh, every book in the series, which are substantive pieces in their own right and help to position the books and create a sense of kind of conversation among the books within the series. Um, and so I think that the, I would say those are sort of the, the defining features of the series are um, on the one hand, the openness and interdisciplinarity counterbalanced with that strong sense of curation and a sense of like cohesiveness and uh, conversation among the books in the, in the series. Yeah, I was going to highlight for, for listeners and viewers, if you've never seen a book in this series, crack one open and take a look at those forwards. Mm -hmm. There are these mighty essays for each book. And you're right, they do, um, over the over the 40 volumes now in the series, you can kind of mm -hmm. trace the development of historical and environmental scholarship um, through, you know, now, I guess the first book was published in 2005, but the series yeah. had some of its origins even before that, um, mm -hmm. but a couple of decades of... Uh, of historiography or uh, scholarly literature in this field. Um, mm -hmm. James, thanks for outlining that for us. Um, I think we'll get a better idea of what the series looks like in its most recent iterations by talking to these authors uh, who we've got with us. Um, so I'm going to start with Angela. Um, Angela, you're the author of, I believe, the most recent book in the series, if not one of the most recent books in the series, Fossilized Environmental Policy in Canada's Petro Provinces. Can you share with uh, the viewers um, a little bit about what your book's about and uh, how you came to write this book? What drew you to the topic? All right, great. Well, um, first, so I'm speaking to you from Conception Bay South, Newfoundland. This is where I'm hanging out during COVID. Uh, and I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that I, I used to know this as the land that my great-great-grandfather farmed on and fished from. But um, long before that, this was the land of the Beothic people. And uh, European settlers drove the Beothic people to extinction by the early 1800s. <laughs> 
I'm learning a lot more about the history of the land that I'm living on. So I just wanted to take a moment to say that. Uh, before I offer a few comments about the book, though, I wanted to acknowledge also that this is likely a really tough time for many people, especially if you're juggling childcare or elder care and community work. And um, I hope that people are managing in this moment. And I also wanted to say that I hope this kind of webinar doesn't add pressure. Uh, to be perfectly clear, I was doing copy edits of this book when COVID hit. And um, I can assure you that my, my productivity or whatever that might be has been in a free fall <laughs> ever since. So let's be kind to each other and to ourselves too um, as academics in this moment. I will proudly proclaim the decline of my productivity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, free fall, absolutely. So, uh, so about the book, um, another admission here, it's, uh, it was in 2011, I just was going back through old emails about this, that uh, I sent the proposal to Randy Schmidt at UBC Press indicating that I would have the complete manuscript to him in 2012. Um, so things did not go according to plan with this project. Many beautiful and not so beautiful life things got in the way. So, so there we are. Um, so where this book came from? Well, I am from a working class family. My family's life intersected with the oil sector in a lot of different ways. My father worked briefly offshore here as a pipe fitter in the early 1980s. And uh, later he was helping to build offshore production platforms. Both of my brothers went as tradespeople to Alberta's tar sands or oil sands, however you want to refer to them. So I've been intrigued in a personal way for a long time about the environmental, but also the social costs of Canada's oil boom. So I began focusing on the environmental costs in particular, though, of Canadian oil production about 15 years ago. And uh, at that time, environmental organizations were beginning to issue <coughs> warnings about the intensification of a really destructive form of fossil fuel extraction that was underway in Alberta. That's the, uh, the tar sands, oil sands. So my doctoral work studied that and some other cases and became, after many years, this book Fossilized that I've got now finally in front of you. So Fossilized focuses on Canada's three largest oil producing provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland and Labrador. So this set of cases is what I call our Petro provinces. And the book itself is tracing out how each of these provinces over the, what I'm calling the last oil boom period, what is likely the last oil boom period, um, 2005 to 2015, at their richest point in history, how these provinces allowed environmental regulatory capacity to wilt or actively undercut it as oil production was reaching unprecedented levels. Hmm. So, I am by no means a, an historian. I don't pretend to be an historian at all. Um, but to understand the context of our current mess, I took a longer view. And so what I was seeing is in, important, I think, here to the context of how I understand these cases is how the way oil was imagined at the start of commercial production. So this is in the 1960s in Alberta and Saskatchewan, 1990s in Newfoundland and Labrador, and earlier with exploration work as well. Oil was imagined as nothing less than an economic savior uh, for these provinces. It was a way to diversify from previous industries that had gone bust, so wheat or cod, and tra transition from being poor colonies, what were considered to be colonies within Canada, to growth leaders. So oil was hailed in different ways in these provinces as an economic and also a social miracle. It's considered to be a lifeblood in Alberta, 
a chance to find a place in the sun in Saskatchewan or an opportunity to become masters of our own destiny or to find an escape from poverty in Newfoundland and Labrador. So successive governments, I trace out how successive governments seized on oil as an economic last chance, offering a wide range of enticements to kickstart and then grow and sustain that sector. So by the time we get to that 10 year period that I was looking at, the provinces were in the midst of a remarkable economic expansion thanks to oil. But this was, and it still is, based on extreme unconventional oil. That's tar sands in Alberta, fracking in Saskatchewan, and ultra deep, very far offshore extraction in Newfoundland and Labrador. So this is what um, Andrew Nikifor, journalist Andrew Nikifor, called the ugly, difficult, and tough stuff at the bottom of the barrel. And we, we saw this we, and we see this playing out in these provinces. So while these three provinces were strikingly dependent on oil for revenue and exports and that sort of thing, the environmental toll of that intensifying extreme extraction was dismaying and especially the climate cost. Yet even when they were awash in oil revenues, richer than they'd ever been in the past, the Petro provinces actively weakened environmental regulatory systems. And I document this in case by case through the book, paying attention to environmental assessment processes, barriers to government transparency with the public, a simple lack of research on the sector's environmental impacts. So, you know, things that we simply don't even know and didn't really bother to research well. And of course, remarkably incomplete policies on carbon emissions. So basically what these three provinces have done over time, particularly in this decade, was to give a free pass to the sector. And yet we know the oil and gas sector is the leading source of emissions, the fastest growing source of emissions in Canada. So um, it, that was this, this has been pretty depressing work. <laughs> I'm not saying that the book is a good news story, but now I'm focused on more forward-looking projects on solutions. I'm doing some international comparative work now on the countries that are moving to ban oil and gas production, given the climate crisis, to um, choose to keep fossil fuels in the ground. So I'm hoping that from what I learned and presented in that book, we can find some solutions to doing it better in the future. So that's a little teaser about what I've been up to in Fossilized. Maybe not a good news story, but a critical story. Um, and I was going to say, like, it's so important to have that uh, that recent past. I mean, I, I, I will say this as a historian, we're not great on the last 20 years. Um, and having that kind of insight from other scholars is is essential to be able to get to those more hopeful, hopeful stories, I think. Let's move on to the second book. We're going to swing back around and try and move our way through all three books here because I've got a ton of questions for Angela because this is an area I do research in, but I won't dwell only on uh, energy history and, uh, and oil policy uh, here. But let's uh, move on to Stefan. Um, Stefan, your book is uh, coming out soon here called uh, The Government of Natural Resources, Science, Territory, and State Power in Quebec, 1867 to 19. 39. Uh, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about uh, what your book is about and, and what led you to this topic. Sure. Thank you, Sean. Um, so the book, just to bring some context, is actually the translation of a book published uh, in 2016 or 17 in French in a collection called uh, Historical Geography. And so it's about the uh, role of state scientists in framing resource policies in Quebec from Confederation to World War II. 
And actually, I'm interested by the growth of science in the public administration in relation to the exploitation of natural resources as a state project. So what I do, what I do in the book is to study the history of mining, logging, hunting and fishing, as well as agriculture. And I describe how the exploitation of natural resources is made as an object of knowledge and a tool of government. So I explore how uh, scientists turn ideas into policies that regulate human behavior and human interactions with minerals, with trees, fish and game, crops, livestock, and the land itself. Um, so <clears throat> one of the interests is to look at how the uh, construction of the landscape by uh, scientists leads to a certain definition as to the way that uh, natural resources are to be extracted improve and protected. And this has a profound implication in the formation of resource users, whether we're talking about the mining prospectors, uh, settlers of the colonization movement, subsistence farmers, commercial agricultural producers, elite sportsmen, and also uh, more common popular members of uh, the fish and game clubs. Uh, and this uh, is what I call the government of natural resources, which has to do more with framing the conducts of resource users through environmental changes than with uh, regulations and resource policies per se. Uh, of course, this is a large agenda because I look at all those different fields of uh, expertise, but I first needed to tackle some very basic questions such as uh, how were uh, the scientific service were set up at the turn of the 20th century, especially in the provincial settings, because at that time there were very few professional scientists. And even in the universities, uh, the, uh, say the faculty of applied sciences were barely being set up. Uh, just to give one example, uh, in the case of forestry schools, uh, the one at the University of Toronto, the University of New Brunswick, and Laval University were set up in the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, then another question is, what were the scientists doing? Um, well, scientists do science, but what does that mean exactly? And so I was uh, wondering about what was happening in the laboratory, but also uh, during the exploration and surveying activities and in the different experimental setups, uh, the demonstration farms, the hatcheries, um, uh, the farm, uh, the, uh, the nurseries and all that. And uh, another question was how the scientific activities had an impact on the exploitation of natural resources. What were the implication, the social implications of environmental knowledge as it was developed and implemented by the state scientists. So um, <clears throat> what initially led me to the topic uh, was uh, my interest in the relationship between science and the growth of the state apparatus. And this was a question that I first explored in my uh, first book project that was on uh, uh, applied entomology, the, the science of insect control in governmental, federal governmental laboratories. Uh, now, that first book was written from a history of science perspective, and now I turn more into environmental history and 
historical geography. Uh, one of the my principal concern for the the book was to put some meat on around the idea of uh, seeing like a state that was framed by uh, anthropologist James Cutt. Um, actually, who is actually seeing when we say that seeing like a state? What, what is the state in that case? Uh, and how is that status gaze being articulated? And once it is, uh, the gaze is taking a f uh, the form of a policy and is being implemented in the landscape, how scientists and their knowledge are participating to the government of men and things, uh, men being like the resource users and all that. And to answer uh, those questions, I look at the activities of scientists and more especially at their spatial practices which involve more than uh, the mapping of the territory and the resources. And to do that, I have used a very uh, conventional material of historians, which is the uh, annual reports of governmental departments. However, uh, I have used them in a very less common way, I think, uh, which was by revealing the special information that those reports contain. contain. Uh, among other things, what I did was to look closely at the public accounts and not to discuss dollars and expenses, but um, to follow the money, so to speak. So uh, so I was following the money and the scientists at the same time, uh, wondering where the scientific and technical personnel was put to work, uh, where did they conduct the uh, geological surveys at different time periods, where did they set up the research stations and how did that change over time in relation to environmental change? Uh, where were located the, the tree nurseries, the hatcheries, the fish hatcheries? Um, and are the introduction of living materials, uh, seedlings, uh, animal bread, fish eggs, and fry modify the landscape? So this is more a historical geography of uh, scientific activities that is uh, central to my analysis. Um, so uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what the book is about. <laughs> and, and I'm already seeing some possibilities for intersection with Angela's book because now I'm wondering, you know, what's the role of science in contemporary or near contemporary environmental policy in these petro states? But maybe we can swing back to that after we hear a bit from. Uh, Dan about his new book uh, with UBC Press as well, uh, which is titled Fixing Niagara Falls, um, Environment, Energy and Engineers at the World's Most Famous Waterfall. Dan, tell us all about it. What's this book about? And uh, I think I know why you wrote about Niagara Falls, because it's uh, awfully close to uh, what you were writing about in your first book. Yeah, the idea for the book came out of the first book. I, I mean, I could expand on that, but it's Pretty clear they flow out of one another. Bad pun, of course. For, for of the, the audience uh, who don't know, Dan's first book was on the uh, St. Lawrence Seaway. Right. And of course, doing water means you get to do lots of water puns. Um, <laughs> but th this book, like um, Stefan and like Angela's, also looks at the role of the state quite heavily and the role of expertise. Although I look at engineers maybe a little more than scientists, but there's a lot of, a lot of parallels uh, there. And so, yeah, th this did flow out of that first first book and I guess sort of the animating questions are during that first book I discovered the extent to which Niagara Falls had been very heavily manipulated by both Canada and the United States 
So uncovering how that happened, why that happened, the extent of it sort of became the goal. And it was, you know, fun to be able to just focus on something that's actually a pretty small area in terms of total acreage and just do a deep dive into, into its history. And so that's looking at how does Niagara Falls become this mixture of the artificial and the natural. So in you know, some of our academic jargon, how does it become hybrid infrastructure to the point that you might even say it's fake to an extent. So uh, unpacking that became uh, one of the things I was most concerned with. And so that involves looking at or focusing on the role of the state, especially um, the state-built hydroelectric projects later in the 20th century. So I'm concerned with how the US and Canada shaped Niagara Falls, but in turn, how dealing with Niagara Falls shaped uh, the political systems of the US and Canada. So to do that, it's, it's environmental history, but I'm trying to bring in you know, science and technology studies and envirotech. It's very consciously in, into the energy humanities, as well as you know, transnational borderlands and um, environmental diplomacy, Canada-US relations. And then, you know, with, with dives into historical geography and environmental policy at, at times as well. Of course, that's one of the attractions of the series is that ability to go in those, those different directions. So very much looking at how that expertise, how it between the different countries, between different agencies, between Ontario and New York State, how that expertise meets at the border, how the border becomes sort of a crucible of knowledge and changes that expertise in, in many ways. So, I mean, obviously a lot has been written about Niagara Falls, especially in, you know, the progressive era late 19th century, early 20th, when Niagara Falls is sort of uh, where you see a lot of the formative advances in large scale hydroelectric production and distribution happen at Niagara Falls and it becomes associated with that. And of course, there's lots of work on the tourism as well. So in my book, I'm focusing more on the 1920s to the 1970s. So the period when the governments and the states get involved in building the hydroelectric projects rather than private enterprise. But also very much I'm looking at the extent to which the the states work with industrial capitalism to remake the waterfall in ways that serve the goals of larger society and uh, industrial capitalism as well. So uh, I do cover in the first few chapters of the book the, that pe the periods, the period leading up to 1920. I won't say too much about that um, because that has been w well covered by others. But what comes out of that period, and the reason I go over it in the book is to establish that there's this history of uh, attention between trying to get maximum beauty versus maximum power or energy out of Niagara Falls. And that tension defi defines the modern history, I think, of, of Niagara Falls. So it's how much water can you divert away from the waterfall for electrochemicals and for hydroelectric production? Because if, when you do so, of course, it means the waterfall doesn't look as good. So that hurts the very powerful tourist industry. So how do you how do you have your cake and eat it too? How do you have your waterfall and watch it at the same time? So uh, a lot of people were concerned with, uh, even as they put it, to to stop Niagara's suicide or save it from itself. Because on top of diverting water, the waterfall naturally erodes on an average of few feet few feet per year. So if you have tourist or industrial infrastructure, you want that to have a fixed address, right? That's not constantly moving. So people would claim, oh, we're going to divert water to save, to protect the waterfall. So erosion will stop. Well, we'll, we'll take the water for you. We'll take it off your hands and we'll use it for industrial purposes. So that's kind of, <laughs> in a nutshell, summarizing several decades in an oversimplified way. So at the same time, well, you know, the two different political units are trying to do that the federal governments of Canada, the US are trying to come to 
international agreements because they need to because of the Boundary Waters Treaty to apportion the water, take more of the water and make engineering changes to Niagara Falls. So there's a bunch of failed agreements in 1929, 1932, and 1941, which I you know, go, go through in the book. But that, that's sort of as a vehicle to then concentrate on what's the fulcrum or sort of hinge point of the book, which is the 1950 Niagara River Diversion Treaty. So this, after all those decades of negotiations, they finally get a treaty that manages to pass the U.S. Senate, get through, and this authorizes the two countries to re-engineer Niagara Falls so they can take the majority of its water, at the same time making a bunch of interventions to try to disguise and hide the extent to which uh, they're taking all that water. So that 1950 treaty outlines the International Niagara Control Works, a whole series of what they call remedial works. So that's carving out the actual waterfall, changing its shape, shrinking it, as well as installing a, a large dam with gates just above the waterfall, further up the river. So uh, under that treaty, what this means is during tourist hours, they have to leave about half of the water that's supposed to go over the waterfall flowing over. The other half can be diverted. Then at nighttime, during the tourist hours, and then basically from the fall to the spring, they can take three quarters of the water. So at best, if you go to Niagara Falls, you're only seeing half the water or maybe a quarter of the water that actually goes over. And all that water is being diverted to large hydroelectric stations. I mean, many had been built, um, but really uh, the, the ones we currently have were built in the early Cold War period um, on both sides of the border. So there's a chapter in the book that goes through the, the transborder construction of the, the, different, the different sides and gets into, on the American side, for example, they had to expropriate land from the Tuscarora. So it gets into some of uh, those issues as well. And I mean, I, I was lucky enough, lucky enough to get access to a lot of the internal engineering records that Ontario Hydro was just going to throw out. And I found in a, basically a dank basement at a transformer station in Kipling in Toronto. So they didn't really know what they were showing me, I don't think. And they probably wouldn't have if they would have known what it was. But basically, I got, you know, the high level discussions of how to remake things. So I was able to you know, sort of go inside the black box of hydraulic engineers. And um, part, I talk a lot, a lot about that in the book, how models are used. This was a formative period for the use of hydraulic scale models to, to plan everything and get into the expertise of, you know, how, the, how do they deal with uncertainty with using models for the cut and try method, all those sorts of things. I mean, because the goal really was in remaking Niagara Falls in the engineer's own word was to create the sufficient impression of water. It just had to look right. And to do that, you have to have the correct curtain of water. So it didn't matter if as much was falling over, but as long as it, their criteria were you had to adequately reflect the colored lights at night, it had to control how much mist and spray came up from the waterfall, and it had to be able to control these remedial works, how much ice formed at the hydro intakes in the winter. So all those things are the focus of the middle chapters of the book. And then the last chapter is about the campaign between 1965 and 1975 to turn off the American, when they tried to remake the American Falls, the smaller set of waterfalls. Um, so they turned, the U.S. Corps of Eng Army Corps of Engineers turned that off in 1969, which is sort of uh, a famous event. They ultimately decide not to remake it for lots of different reasons, including the burgeoning environmental movement. Um, but I go into a lot more detail in, in the book. So basically to conclude, what I'm trying to show is that by submerging the Niagara waterfall and its infrastructure and then sort of fronting it with a flowing facade. The governments thought they were, were trying to empower nature to live up to its potential, or at least its anthropocentrically defined potential, which meant sufficiently producing both energy and beauty. So I will leave it there. 
I think it's obvious for viewers that these are three very, uh, very fascinating studies, deeply researched studies that that connect quite well together. And I think that speaks to why these three books are in the the Nature History Society series together. Um, and uh, and of course, Dan, your book is a, a case study of an incredibly complicated, you know, techno natural machine made all the more complicated by the fact that it sits on an international border. Um, so. Uh, readers can look forward to quite an interesting story, I imagine. Um, I do want to remind everyone that this is being recorded live. And so our audience on YouTube can ask us questions in the chat. So if you're watching out there, just post a question into the chat and I'll relay it over to the panel here. Um, I've got some questions also for the panel uh, as we keep going, but we've got some uh, uh, friends out there in the audience and uh, hopefully some strangers as well. I see Dean Bavington posting some stuff. Tina Lou's out there. Hi, Dean. Hi, Tina. Um, so let's move right along, let people think about some questions that they might have, because I think hearing about what the topics of each of the books are and what they're about are starting to get the juices flowing in terms of seeing the connections around the role of the state, the role of science and technology in, in uh, all three books. Um, Dan, I'll start with you, um, a kind of, I guess, historiographic question about the place of this book in the field in environmental history and environmental studies. Um, what brought you back to the UBC Press series? You published your first book in the Nature History Society series, and you now publish the second book uh, with the series. Do you see the series um, as the place where you can kind of make your contribution in these two fields? Yeah, very much. It's so interdisciplinary, and it's the, the, the different con intellectual constituents that you want to see have seeing your book, I think, are going, going to notice it. And I mean, basically... You just want to get another Graham win forward, right? That's, that's part of the motivation here. Um, have him summarize your book for you and, and sometimes do it better than you did is, is one of the attractions. Um, but in terms of, I mean, in terms of contributing to the broader scholarship, I mean, in some ways too, I was, this book is a return to some very old and classical questions of of Canadian environmental history, right, about the role of the state. Even Niagara Falls itself has been studied a long time ago um, and, for, and for many years. But trying to do it, I hope, with some different questions and some different approaches and some different methodologies. Um, so, I mean, I am trying, uh, since I do teach in an environmental studies setting rather than environmental history, I do sort of imbibe a lot of those different approaches since I don't teach much environmental history. So. I'd like to think that makes its way into the research. It's still historical, but I am borrowing from a lot of the other fields that I, I think I mentioned earlier. So um, that, that makes this series a good home for that too, because you know, um, with historical geography, environmental policy, science and technology studies, all those, all those different reasons. And I mean, I mean, as you know, Sean, environment, energy history, I think, is one of the more important and growing <laughs> sectors in Canadian environmental history too. So I mean, I'm trying to. Um, answer, pose some different questions and bring some different angles to the study of hydroelectricity, which is in some ways a very old or very classic way of doing environmental history, um, but connecting it more to some of the, the newer energy history approaches. And to, so, you know, I make arguments about hydro-democracy and hydraulic imperialism. So the ways that way we now see Canada as a petrostate, it was a hydrostate in many ways before to the extent that hydroelectricity really, at least in central Ontario and then BC and different provinces, to a different extent, um, hydroelectricity really shaped the political economy and even the politics of a lot of these jurisdictions and played a really big and underappreciated role in shaping Canada-US 
relations as well. So um, I think those are some of the ways, I guess I would say, where I'm trying to contribute there. Now, Angela, your work as a political scientist, I think, as James pointed out, maybe the only political scientist in the series so far. Um, but uh, I guess one of the questions is, do you think there needs to be more policy-oriented research in a series like this? Or, or what kinds of contributions do you think uh, a policy-oriented or policy analysis-focused study could bring to broader um, studies in environmental scholarship? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that, that I'm your, uh, your potentially your sole political scientist. I met uh, Graeme Wynn at the book stand at UBC Press One Congress, and uh, Randy introduced us. And Graeme, I think, was more convinced that there, were, that there was more history in my book than I was. So I'm still, even at this event, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I should be here. I hope you're putting up with me. But um, so basically, you know, in, in the work, what I was doing is trying to understand environmental policy in these cases by drawing together a lot of different fields. I mean, I was working through uh, work in the fields of economics and biology, geography, cultural studies. And so I was drawn into a lot of areas where I have to say I felt uncomfortable, you know, that I, maybe I wasn't doing justice to the field, but I was convinced that I needed these interdisciplinary understandings to figure out what was happening in this case. And, and I should say, too, in the humanities as well, you know, that every time I go to do field work in a new place, when I'm in a library of, you know, at the University of Alberta, for example, I remember the first book that I looked for was an anthology of poetry, you know, I, I want because I want to know what people imagine themselves to be and what kind of past they're coming from and what kind of future they might be working towards. So I, I really like an, an interdisciplinary approach. I think it's, it's really important. But using an historical approach, using some of that literature allowed me to see why it was that the oil sector was prioritized and then protected, why other options were foreclosed over the decades of, of this development, right? So, so yeah, all, all very interesting to me. But um, I mean, in terms of needing more policy focus, um, and I guess broadly, I'd say that if COVID has shown us anything is that we've got a lot of intersecting <coughs> crises that are unfolding, environmental ones, climate in particular, racism, inequality, the hollowing of democracy. Um, the COVID pandemic has exposed a lot of these for us. And those of us who are working as faculty members, we are so lucky and privileged to have some time to read and reflect and to write. And when we do, I hope we do it with an eye to challenging the structures in our society. And that means on the ground contesting policy and pushing ahead with policy alternatives. So yes, you know, by all means, I think we need more policy oriented research more generally. Um, and obviously in this series too, I think that would be great. But I think I would also add, and I hope this isn't out of place, but I think that as social scientists or folks who are in the humanities, I think that um, working for change in our communities, you know, participating in and supporting grassroots movements, bringing our research into public debate through media, bringing it to government, activating it. Um, I think that's really an essential part of our work. And maybe I'm impatient, <laughs> you know, for change, I'm impatient for environmental <laughs> justice, but I feel like academics can't simply publish policy work, but we also need to, to get that work out there. Well, and I should say, you know, you know, you don't stand alone in the series. Like, I think your book fits really well with 
<clears throat> with Carly Dokis' book, uh, Where the Rivers Meet, um, where you've got environmental policy around impact assessment and indigenous consultation uh, around an energy pipeline um, that I think complements your book really well. Um, and I think you've made a great point, too, in terms of thinking about future action and change. Um, if we're if we don't have these kinds of perspectives in a series like this, it's not filling up, um, I guess, the full toolkit for thinking about how to affect change, um, particularly around environmental policy. Um, Angela, we do have a question for you here in the audience from Tina Liu, uh, who says, uh, as you were talking, I thought about Friedman's first law of petropolitics. Does your study of petro provinces lead you to make any generalizations about petropolitics in Canada? Oh, that's a huge question. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Tina. Write to me so we can talk. Um, I mean, I, I think in preparing for this today, I the question that I had in my mind was, you know, what would I have done differently? And I think my focus here is through and through on what governments did or didn't do. But in reality, it's the actors from the industrial side, right? It's the firms and associations that have exerted a lot of pressure on those governments over time. And I, I really don't have, I, I don't do justice to that. The folks at the corporate mapping project are doing that, you know, a full focus on that, but I haven't. And so, I mean, I, I guess this is a roundabout way of answering a question to say that one of the things that we're seeing playing out is we have governments that are made very vulnerable, that, that are vulnerable from an economic perspective, and they're looking to fill that gap and diversify. And if they happen to find oil, all of a sudden there's this, you know, a process that's triggered of often private actors that are trying to get what they can from those resources and creating a, um, a dependence on, uh, from the state on extracting those resources. And here what we have in Canada now is a really interesting and worrisome dynamic where we have fossil fuel extractors and proponents and associations that have aligned with the finance sector. So banks, financial institutions in Canada, and together working in tandem, pressuring governments not to enact the kind of environmental, in particular climate policies that we need right now. So I think that's something that I'm seeing playing out province by province, and I think we see it play out federally as well, that symbiosis, if you will, but that sounds too positive, <laughs> but that relationship between the state and industrial actors and, uh, and now also financial institutions, how we get mired and entrenched, that I think is a common trend. And, and the, the question that we need to ask now is how do you unlock that? If we are carbon entangled, how do we untangle so that's the work that I'm pursuing now, but it's a really difficult one, you know, because there's a lot of interest now at play and governments and people in these provinces have convinced themselves that oil is the only way. And yet actually what oil is doing in this moment of climate crisis, uh, it's becoming, it's making us really vulnerable, right? As we move towards this idea of stranded assets, um, that it, suddenly we have petro provinces that, you know, it's, it's a question the, their, their, their future as a province is at question because we don't know what's going to come of the value of the reserves that they're banking on being able to extract. Anyways, great question, Tina. I hope that we could uh, talk about it in person at some point. I'm sure she will reach out. Tina says, uh, LOL, sorry, just really interested in your book. 
<laughs> no, it's great. Don't apologize. <laughs> but um, thank you for like asking this huge question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use moderator's privilege to also uh, share some stuff that I thought about as you were speaking. Um, a, I don't know if it's an irony or if this is a continuity in terms of the relationship between government, industry, and science and regulation. Um, but in, I guess, Western Canada's second oil boom before the boom that you look at, um, the second oil boom provoked environmental policy, provoked the establishment of environmental uh, impact assessments, the creation of departments of the environment in the Western provinces and the Canadian government. Um, and so, you know, I am, I am eager to also get your book and dive into it because I'm curious as you get to the beginning of the 21st century, how we go from, um, uh, I guess, a heightening of awareness of the environmental impacts of the of the oil sector, oil and gas sector, uh, leading to like Alberta's first uh, environmental policies in the 1970s to a very different kind of scenario where there's environmental policy, I guess, retrenchment in the early 21st yeah. century. Um, and this might be a good segue into Stefan and and Angela to talk a little bit about where science fits here. So Stefan, in your study, uh, wh where do you see that relationship between the state science and industry in terms of the exploitation of natural resources or the harnessing of natural resources? Are they operating more autonomously or do you see the state and science operating, I guess, symbiotically to use the word Angela used, um, but independently of industry or are all three commingled? Mm -hmm. um, actually, I didn't look uh, at the industry uh, per se. Um, <coughs> Uh, unlike, for example, when you uh, consider a book like the, the the Politics of Development, where industry and state were the main uh, locus of the the study with natural resources, it's more the the, the users and the uh, individuals involved in the extraction of the resources. So it would be more the, like the the mining prospectors than the the mining uh, company uh, as such, or um, the the settlers who is supplying the pulp and paper mills with wood with timber than how the uh, timber companies operated their their uh, timber limits and all. so uh, so it's not um, so it's it's not the the the, the focus uh, of of the book. And I guess when I think about the period that you look at, Stefan, you see maybe closer connections between science, the state and settler colonialism, right? So you're thinking about the ways in which science can be used to deploy new ways of exploiting resources to facilitate the expansion of settlement. But by the early 21st century, science, industry and government aren't so much concerned with settling new territories as opposed to what, what we might think of as resource colonialism, just extracting resources from the north. Um, to fuel either financial interests in the South, energy consumption needs in the South uh, from mm -hmm. a different place. I don't know. That's that's speculation <laughs> at this point. If uh, yeah. if that makes any kind of distinction in terms of the periods. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a close link to be drawn between, uh, of course, be between resource extraction and uh, let's say territorial uh, colonization, and part of the the work that I did address uh, those questions in terms of how the, the mappings, the surveying was uh, used to legitimate certain access to the territory and to render illegit illegitimate also the access to territories by non, 
people have to be dismissed as legitimate uh, uh, users. Mm. So, uh, and I think the so far the study of uh, colonization in, in Quebec has been uh, mainly concerned by the ideology, um, especially the religious ideology beyond the colonization uh, movement and all that. And uh, a thing that I do, but not as much as I wanted to, because this is something that came up quite late in the research, is uh, actually what is the role of the, the, the science in this uh, colonization uh, process? And uh, we have, uh, as for forestry, it has been explored a little bit, uh, but I've put uh, more uh, analysis for that uh, colonization movement especially in line with, um, let's say, the reforestation activities of uh, the, the government, how uh, it was claiming territory by uh, doing some reforestation work on that territory. And given the type of tree species that were used, uh, that territory was, uh, that reforested territory was directed to uh, a spe very specific use, which was to supply the pulp and paper industry with uh, spruce trees. If that answers your question, I don't know. <laughs> Certainly answers my question, but I wonder if you can answer Dean Bavington's question, which if you can imagine is about fish. Um, he <laughs> wants to know, are there major differences, uh, Stefan, between how fish were made legible to the state in Quebec versus other provinces of Canada? Okay. Um, as for fish, uh, of course, I'm uh, aware of the work of Dean with uh, the, the cod and the fish in, in the maritime fisheries. Uh, but this is not something that I looked at. I was more interested by uh, the fish for fish angling, for example. Uh, maybe that question was, Dean's question was in that perspective. Um, and I, um, I look at a little bit at what was going on in terms of uh, fish um, hatcheries and fish talking uh, in Ontario, uh, that with primary sources, but uh, the work that Will, William, uh, William Knight did for Ontario. And, uh, but that was late 19th century and it was quite similar what was going on uh, in Quebec uh, uh, at, at that time, uh, because it was mainly run by uh, private individuals um, and have been talking with William Knight uh, recently and we hope to uh, put together our database and look more at what was going on in the two pro in Quebec and Ontario in the uh, later uh, in the in the 20th century uh, but something that was happening in terms of rendering fish legible for uh, fish anglers was a very uh, specialization of hatcheries activities and fish stocking activities, where in the earlier decades, all sorts of fish were being released pretty much everywhere. Uh, well, all sorts of fish, of course, a very few species, but uh, even those few species like uh, uh, salmon and different type of uh, trout and uh, one anish, which is a... Uh, uh, Lachland, uh, uh, salmon, uh, they were distributed all over the provinces. And the, the, there was a tendency we see in the 30s where the original specialization has to where the fish were being raised and were 
being uh, supplied to start the rivers. So we have some form of homogenization of the, the, the aquatic landscape in terms of fish stocking. So it becomes quite uh, more easy to read what is happening in the, those rivers and lakes for the anglers. So then this is a type of legibility, we might say. There, I'm going to assume we've satisfied Dean by talking about fish <laughs> for a little bit um, there. Uh, and he does say thank you. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and says, look forward to reading more uh, of your work and, uh, and, uh, and Will Knight's work as well. Um, okay, I've got a question here from the chat that I think might be good for James. Um, Andrew Watson, University of Saskatchewan, asks, uh, these three books cover uh, a period from 1867 to the present, which makes me wonder, now that there are 40 books in the series, are there any areas of Canadian history that are missing in the series? Where might there be gaps or where are there new topics or subject areas you think there's potential? Huh. That is, uh, yeah, that is a big question. <laughs> Another huge question from the chat. Um, um, it's true that most, if not all, of the books in the series do do cover the post-Confederation period. Um, I don't know really why that is. That would be actually a good question for um, uh, and Angela just posted in our chat. Are there any topics that we've had enough <laughs> enough of already? Uh, that's not another good way of thinking about it. Are there topics that are overdone? But no. Um, no more parks. I think, <laughs> <laughs> No, parks are fascinating. There's always room for more parks. Um, but no, it's true that most of the uh, most of the books, um, almost all, if not all, of the books have covered the post-Confederation period. And I think that would be interesting, actually, for those of you working in the uh, in the field, uh, historians. Uh, I'd be curious to hear your own thoughts on that about why uh, why there aren't more environmental histories of the pre-Confederation period. Um, in terms of the topics, directions that things could go, I don't know. I mean, it's. Uh, I would. I was thinking about this a bit before the event. Obviously, trying to think about what uh, what I could say on around these issues. It's um, you know, as an acquisitions editor, I can have my ideas about where the series might go, and I'm sure Graham has his ideas. But ultimately, you know, it's it's really we're following the field, right? And we're we're seeing what what work is is being done out there. Um, and it's interesting how. Um, in, in Graham's uh, Graham's blog post, that I, again I would encourage everybody to read if they haven't. He he sort of identifies a few clusters that have developed in the series. You know, there's sort of separate conversations or um, distinct conversations going on around different themes in the series. And it's interesting that um, even among the the three books that that are up here, it's totally unintentional. But there is a sort of a, a thread through all these books uh, around the role of the state. Uh, for example, and the next book coming out in the series, um, if, if you haven't heard, is uh, Ron Rudin's uh, book about uh, the maritime marshland rehabilitation, um, which also deals, again, with the role of the state. Um, and so there, there are these threads that just emerge um, that are not deliberate, that are not uh, not uh, directed by us. Um, and so it's, I know this is a very long-winded way of saying that it's, uh, I don't have an answer, <laughs> but... <laughs> um, it's just, I, I think it's, that's useful, though, for for listeners mm -hmm. and viewers to hear that, you know, the book series is not necessarily prescriptive, you know, it is mm -hmm. a reflection of the scholarship. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, if you kind of dip into the series over the 40 books, they kind of show what was happening in a per particular period mm -hmm. of time among among researchers and authors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think on a, on a very practical level, the other thing I was thinking about as we're as we're going into this event is, you know, um, 
really missing in-person conferences. Um, you know, that's that's as as an acquisitions editor, you know, that is where these conversations happen, where we you know meet meet authors and start to see these emerging conversations and new directions in the field. Um, and it's it's been amazing that the the online events that everybody has been putting together. But uh, I'm really hoping that uh, you know that you know the not too distant future we can gather in person again, um, because there's no uh, there's no replacement for that. Well, that seems like a pretty good place for us to stop as we're getting close to time here. We've been going for almost an hour, believe it or not. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to thank all of the uh, panelists this afternoon uh, and our audience for joining us here. So thank you, James. Thank you, Angela. Thank you, Stefan. And thank you, Dan, for being here with us. Nature's Past is produced in Toronto, on the traditional territories of the Huron-Wendat, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Anishinaabek Nation. The current treaty holders are the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, and the territory is subject of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement to peaceably share and care for the Great Lakes region. The show is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment, and you can support the Network in Canadian History and Environment at niche-canada.org support. This episode was made by Angela Carter, Stefan Castingay, Daniel McFarlane, James McNevin, and me, Sean Karash. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast with your favorite podcast player, and leave comments. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. You can always find out more about environmental history research in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Nature's Past. Nature's Past.